Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker is an online advertising network for culture vultures, for people who love books, movies, music, art, photography. You name it. Check out litbreaker.com. You go there and uh, you can advertise on a great variety of culture websites all at once. You can also pick them out uh, one by one if you have a certain favorite or a group of certain favorites. This is the best place to advertise if you want to reach book nerds, art nerds, movie nerds, etc. Litbreaker.com. Check it out. This is an advertising network for culture vultures. Go and advertise there. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. here we go again, everybody. This is it. This is other people. This is something that you're listening to. This is how you have chosen to distract yourself from the inevitability of mortality. How's it going out there? I'm Brad Listy. Thank you for listening. It's good to be with you. I'm talking very fast. I've drank. Uh, I've just drank a lot of caffeine. I'll be honest with you about that. Jim Rulin is my guest. His novel, Forest of Fortune, is available now from Tyrus Books. It is the official August selection of the TNB Book Club the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. For those of you who are not aware, thenervousbreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. Uh, it has its own book club. For only $9.99 a month, you get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. I pick the titles in conjunction with uh, Johnny Evison, my colleague, and then I interview uh, book club authors right here on the program. So it's a nice thing to do. It's a great way to support the cause. If you want to sign up, go to thenervousbreakdown.com and click on book club in the menu bar. Uh, while I'm at it, talking about ways to support the cause, uh, I usually mention this at the end of the show, the app, the Other People app. It's free. It's the official app of this podcast. Uh, it's a great thing to get. It's available wherever apps are available. Once you have it, you don't have to do anything. You get the app, it's on your device, and then new episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. So if you're not you know, uh, if you don't have a Wi-Fi connection, if you're in transit, you can download episodes to listen to on your device, uh, you know, without any internet needed. And uh, best of all, you can sign up for premium right there within the app. So when you get the app, just to make this clear, you have the most recent 50 episodes of this podcast free. And then if you want to sign up for premium, which you can do right there within the app, 
uh, you can stream the full archives, you know, all 300 episodes right there at your fingertips, wherever you go. So go get the app. The app is free and then sign up for premium. It's very cheap. It's like uh, two bucks a month on a rolling basis. If you want to do it that way, or you can do uh, six months of access for five bucks or a full year of access for only $9, which comes out to like 75 cents a month. That should be affordable. I hope. So, uh, just a few things to talk about before we get rolling, uh, random things that have come across my screen as I've been sitting here, uh, this morning for the past couple of hours. Uh, first of all, I want to mention that David Reese, my guest in episode 68, uh, longtime listeners might remember his episode. He's a funny guy. He wrote that book about how to sharpen pencils. You remember that? And, uh, you know, that was back when the podcast was young. I remember having him over. He's a very odd guy. Funny, odd. Uh, I remember when we sat down to do the interview, he told me before we got started that he was going to be looking at the floor the entire time. He kind of warned me that he, he can't talk and make eye contact at the same time. Which uh, was true. He kept looking at the floor the whole time. <laughs> I think it's like, you know, part of his like process, thought-wise. You know, composing his... Uh, his thoughts and, and getting ready to speak or whatever. But he's one of those people that when I was with him, I couldn't figure out if he was putting me on, you know, it's like, is this shtick? Is this real? It's like, not unlike Taolin. If you've, if you've ever been in his presence, you're like, is this, what is this a joke? Is it real? You know, like you kind of find yourself in some sort of state of confusion. But anyway, I was just clicking around online and ran into this uh, link and realized that David Reese now has his own show on the national geographic channel called going deep. And uh, I should mention that David didn't ask me to plug this, nor am I being paid uh, by the National Geographic Society, which is a, a fucking shame, if you ask me. But uh, he's got this show now on the National Geographic Channel, which I find funny. And is, uh, it is an extrapolation of the stuff that he was doing in How to Sharpen Pencils, where, uh, you know, in this program, uh, Going Deep, he basically teaches people how to do something that they basically think they already know how to do. So, like... In one episode, he's teaching you how to flip a coin. In another episode, he's teaching you how to open a door or dig a hole. <laughs> so you can check that out. And you can check out uh, episode 68, my conversation with David Reese, if you sign up for premium. What do you think about that? So uh, anyway, the other thing that I uh, was thinking about this morning when I was walking my dog, don't ask me why. Well, I guess it's been on my mind because I was talking to a friend of mine uh, asking me about dive bars. Have I bitched about this on this show before? I think it's like a common, sh you know, it's a common bit. A lot of people have a problem with this. Uh, but you know, it's like the whole thing where your friends like, yeah, let's go to a dive bar. Just like this hole in the wall, you know, let's just meet at this dive bar because it's like more authentic or something. And, and listen, I get the argument that like, uh, you know, you don't want to go to a chain. Of course I understand uh, the soullessness of chains and the way that they drain you of vital energy and make you feel bad about being alive. I get that. But, you know, there's a, there's a fine line. You go to a dive bar and it's like the place smells like someone vomited on the wall. The bathroom is filthy. And like, everyone's like, this is so great. <laughs> We're at a dive bar. I'm always like, what the fuck? This is disgusting. Get me out of here. This place sucks. It's got a good jukebox or whatever, you know? There's just this, like this whole like thing about authenticity. People feel like the world is fake. So they want anything that like smells literally of authenticity in their lives. But it, I think just, just the whole dive bar thing is taking it, uh, you know, several steps too far. 
you know, I get like a nice, nice dark bar, you know, out of the way that's not like hugely trafficked or something. But like fetishizing filth and and calling it cool. That's another thing. I just want to go to a bar, you know, a bus bar slash restaurant, someplace where I don't feel like nauseous when I even consider the prospect of eating food. Is that too much to ask? Uh, you know, am I getting old? Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is Jim Ruland. His novel, Forest of Fortune, is available now from Tyrus Books. Uh, the Los Angeles Times calls it a, quote, masterpiece. Great review in the Los Angeles Times, and I'm very, very pleased uh, to be featuring this book as the August pick for the TNB Book Club. So here he is, folks. This is Jim Ruland, and his novel, once again, is called Forest of Fortune. I'm in Sherman Oaks, California, in San Fernando Valley. I'm house-sitting, so I've been uh, swimming in the pool and just taking it easy, feeding the dogs. Walking around a strange neighborhood. I see. I, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like, you know, I feel like for anybody, uh, house sitting can be a pretty good gig. I guess it depends on the house. But I often, like, I remember, like, especially earlier in, in my life, before I was married, I used to, like, have these fantasies. Uh, it's sort of like a Gatsby fantasy where it's like, you know, I would love if someone just had, like, a guest house and they just needed somebody to, like, be there. <laughs> And I could just kind of live there and, and help out every once in a while in the garden or something, and the rest of the time I could write. But uh, am I overestimating the situation? Uh, this one is a pretty fancy place. It's, um, but it, it's, it's been really interesting. I mean, I've been doing this for a little over two years now. Uh, I live in San Diego, and I've been working at an ad agency in Los Angeles. And uh, really the only way I could make it work is if I was – crashing on friends' couches, and that kind of bloomed into this uh, pet-sitting, plant-watching, house-taking-care-of deal. Wait, you watch people's plants, or you, I guess you water them, but you're not like actually sitting there? <laughs> well, I'll talk to them if that's part of the request. <laughs> I guess in Los Angeles that's possible. Yeah, plants like poetry. Yes. Actually, you know, there is some, I think there's something to it. I think that it's a, it's a little bit hubristic to assume that, like, plants do not have an intelligence, you know? <laughs> uh, seriously. Like, you know, we always, like, like to think of ourselves, you know, as the highest uh, ha- highest beings and 
other animals are subservient and we have dominion and all this stuff. But like, I can get down with the idea that plants have a, a higher intelligence than we give them credit for. Yep. Absolutely. Pets too. I mean, I'm not really a pet person. I don't own any pets, but so it's been kind of fascinating to become one. You know, I've taken care of pit bulls and cats and multiple cats and, it's it's been an adventure. What do you I mean? Are you coming around on the pet thing? Like, is spending time with these animals warming you to the idea of having your own, or is it solidifying your position to not have any? Uh, both. I think maybe later in life, when I'm uh, you know lonely and not moving around much, I'll definitely um, get a pet. But um, I mean, like my situation now, where I'm trying to be in two cities at once, would would, yeah, would not be ideal. Yeah, and but that's coming, that's coming to an end. I'm going to move back down to San Diego full-time at the end of the summer. Oh, you are? Did you, what, did you change jobs? or? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to um, give the 9 to 5 a bit of a break. Yeah, that sounds like, I mean, because that can be, I mean, all that you're doing, all that traveling, plus writing books, like, how do you even do it all? It's, um, it's been, it's, like I said, it's been challenging, but, um, you know, two years ago, a little over two years ago, um, my wife and I kind of changed careers. I had a shitty job at an Indian casino that I desperately wanted to get out of. And my wife had been unemployed for a couple of years after being laid off from a pharmaceutical company. So she started teaching, and I got this opportunity to work at this agency in L.A. So we were like, well, let's just give it a shot. We'll see, see if we like it. And it turns out my wife loves teaching, and... Uh, She's going to stick with that, and I'm going to go back down to San Diego and support her in that. Nice, dude. Well, and uh, I, I, are you going to be writing another book? Do you have something in the works? Usually, I save that question for the end, but it seems like a natural time to ask. Yeah, I will. Yeah, I do. I'm I'm about three quarters of the way through uh, a new novel. Okay. Wow. Okay. So you got a good you got a good uh, amount of work done. So, uh, you know, I've known you for years. I think we first met at Vermin. Uh, Vermin on the Mount, which is your Los Angeles-based uh, reading series, which has been going on for, what, like a decade now? That's uh, right. Yeah. So uh, I read at that years ago when my novel came out. I think that was the first time we ever met. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, but we've crossed paths, you know, uh, over the past decade many times at various literary events, and uh, you've been involved. And, I, and I'm just curious to know, like, how you got started like did you just decide to launch vermin before you'd published anything or had you published stuff and then decided to do it or like what was the origin of that well i was pretty tight in the uh, punk rock community in la even though i'm not from la i wrote for la zines when i was in grad school and then when i moved out to la in the 90s um i start. i worked for i wrote for Flipside, and when that went under a good friend of mine started a new magazine, Razor Cake, and I've been writing for that magazine since day one. And they've been doing that for almost 15 years. So that was the community. Um, we did readings. You know, we did. We had our own little literary scene, and um, a big part of it also was the partying. I used to drink a lot, and um, but I was also kind of bitter. I mean, I felt very shut out from literary L.A., I felt like an outsider, but also felt like I was supposed to feel like an outsider. I was supposed to embrace all that. Well, yeah, you were you were writing for punk rock scenes. It's like part of the right. It's part of the mo, right? Exactly. So, um, but um, 
but I was kind of bitter about that. I mean, there was I, I felt like there was ah, there was no scene in L.A. And what I came to discover is there are a shit ton of scenes. Um, like all the writing programs and universities kind of have their own scene because they're always bringing in writers and having events and have magazines. Um, Ten years ago, there weren't a ton of reading series, but there sure are now. Yeah, I feel I feel that way about like literary. I feel like that way about uh, author websites, uh, online literary magazines, literary podcasts. I feel like this stuff over the past you know five ten years has just completely exploded. Yep, definitely a lot of podcasts. Um, I don't think there were a lot of literary podcasts, um, you know, even five years ago. No, but but um, so a friend of mine asked me to. So Todd at Razor Cake, Todd Taylor. He asked me to set up a reading for uh, Joe Mino, uh, a writer out of Chicago who's really active in the punk rock community and a literary writer. And So I was like, sure, and maybe it'd be cool if we could open it up to just our small circle of punk rockers. And so I reached out to some people and um, put a little reading together in Chinatown. And, uh, you know, Joshua Berman was on the bill, Andrea Siegel was on the bill, um, Joe and Todd read, and then another uh, zinester, another great baseball zine from New York, Mike Falloon. Um, we did that reading, and uh, um, before we even did the first one, the, the manager at the Mountain Bar in Chinatown was like, let's do this again. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah. So that's interesting, because, and this is of a piece with certain things that I've been talking about on recent episodes re- with regard to... Um, the solitude of the writing life and the need for community and the fallacy of people thinking they can do it all on their own, even though the act of composition, you know, takes place, uh, you know, in, in a singular fashion. Um, like, so did this give you, I mean, it, I mean, obviously it sounds like it gave you a, a different perspective on Los Angeles and on the literary scene here and your, you know, entree to it, but like, did it really help you the way you felt about yourself as a writer uh, and did it give you a sense of being a part of the thing? Yes and no. I've, I've found that this idea of, like, how essential a community is to the spiritual health of the writer is, is a lesson that I've had to learn more than once. Um, when I went, uh, when I was working at the Indian Casino, even though I was still doing vermin in L.A. Um, three or four times a year, I was. I felt very cut off from things. Well, because I was in an Indian casino <laughs> on a reservation, you know, like way out in the middle of nowhere. So, I mean, I was. It wasn't just a feeling. Right. Right. Exactly. But I was also pretty deep in my own alcoholism then. So I was starting to do that. Get back to that place where I was before I started Vermin, where I was getting bitter, and uh, I wasn't. I had an agent invite me to. My agent invited me to explore other opportunities, uh, which is always a fun thing. And uh, so I was kind of bitter about my place in the world, and I kind of had to come back to San Diego and reach out to the writing community there and really get involved to kind of, uh, you know, build myself back up. Okay, so let's let's press pause for a second because I want to talk about about bitterness because I I think everybody who has struggled – uh, even a little bit, you know, creatively trying to get a book done, trying to break into any career, really. But I mean, let's just keep it to writing since that's what the show is about. Uh, you know, that, that's a terrible feeling to be bitter and to be that frustrated. Um, 
like how do you, like how did you get out of it? Like how do you how do you snap yourself out of that? Well, I mean, being aware of it is one, and for me personally, it goes hand in hand with uh, the drinking and the not drinking. In that I could see, I mean, you, I mean, everybody know everyone who's been in a writing community or been in a university knows there are people who are in that community who. Uh, used to be a big name or used to be very active but have kind of gone into some kind of hibernation and you can find them in the bar and on good days they'll tell you stories and on other days they'll tell you to fuck off and it's that whole bitterness, that feeling that something was denied, the feeling that something is owed to them and uh, it's it's so it's such an easy thing to fall into um, for me, you know, not to get too preachy but Bitterness really works hand in hand with uh, the whole idea of resentment, which is something that you learn in uh, recovery programs about how resentment is like the fastest path to a relapse. So, I mean, I tell people all the time that recovery has given me all the tools that I need to deal with the highs and lows of writing because you are going to have rejection. You are going to have that coming at you again and again and again. There's, there's no ladder. So um, I feel like being aware of like that resentment is something that's just going to bring you down. It's just a negative thing that nothing good could ever come out of resentment. It's just, you know, it's like a hornet's nest. Just leave it alone. Yeah. Away. But yet it's so hard to resist. It already can be, especially when the no's are coming in or, you know, the money's drying up or you're just like in the middle of a book and you don't know where the fuck you are and you're like... You know what am I doing? Why have I spent? Oh. I've, been, I've been working on this for four years, you know, like whatever. Oh yeah, and it's like you know, and you know, you you prepare yourself, and it's just. I mean, you can't prepare yourself. You know, when you get a good review or a bad review, it's still um, unpleasant. But it's kind of uh, it's kind of like what Allen Ginsberg say about said about acid. It's not the trip; it's what you do with it. So I mean, you can't not experience a sad feeling or a happy feeling, but, um, what you do with that the next day. Well, yeah. And speaking of reviews, uh, I should congratulate you on the, uh, the review in the LA times. They called your book a masterpiece. That's pretty nice. Yeah. That, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I would take that. <laughs> well, it's a masterpiece of desperation. And <laughs> but yeah, you so can, you can always abridge these. I, I would just say a masterpiece. Yeah. And by the way, it, it, that's not a, that's not a, uh, a, a lie. That's actually what they, they called it a masterpiece. Um, so, okay. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, the drinking, if you don't mind, because I think this is something that, uh, clearly you're not alone in, in life, but especially in like the writing life, you know, it's well-documented as being something that a lot of writers struggle with, whether it's alcohol or whether it's other substances or all of the above. And, uh, you know, you mentioned it in correlation with, uh, with the bitterness, you know, and how they seem to go hand in hand. But can you talk a little bit about, um, I guess the relationship between substance abuse and writing and then, you know, how you finally got sober. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's maybe in terms of like, there's definitely a romanticism of drinking and writing that goes together. Um, for me, it was more of a, for, mo for most of my life, it was more just a life problem than a writing problem. And that I was always a, uh, high-functioning alcoholic. I don't know if it was, you know, having been in the Navy or 
having been in a Navy family, I just kind of knew how to, um, you know, suit up in the morning and make my make a go of it no matter how bad I felt. But it's, for me, it was, uh, you know, it, I guess for most people, it's a traumatic event that shines a light on, like, you know, how badly you're fucking up. And, um, you know, they have people who are considered high bottoms and low bottoms. A low bottom is someone who smashes their truck, loses their job, their spouse takes the kids away, and they're, you know, tens and thousands of dollars of debt, and they pretty much have no choice but to give up drinking and rebuild their life. Right. Uh, that wasn't me. Um, I was very fortunate in that um, I was, you know, bitter because I was in a job that I hated, um, but I was newly married, had a wonderful family, uh, but I lost a very close friend, and that was the wake-up call. What happened? Like, lost a friend to substance? Yeah, overdose. Yeah. And uh, I lost a buddy to an overdose, uh, one of my best friends, just a couple years ago. Yeah, and um, it's it's really it, it's something that I'm always eager. My ears always pop up when you talk about it on the show with different writers that you've had on and their relationship to substance and recovery and all that. I mean, it's I mean, it's just part of uh, it, it's kind of like an extra level of struggle and shame that people who have that have to go through well i was just talking yeah i was just, i mean and then this like the recent uh the suicide of robin williams because it's like you know substance uh depression bitterness suicide you know these are all things that fall under the uh the umbrella of the writing life unfortunately at least to a degree yeah. and i was talking oh. to i was talking to a friend of mine um like right after the robin williams thing hit and you know for whatever reason uh you know that one hit everybody really hard because he was he was really beloved and he's like a funny man and you know, it's just like, it just made you feel sick and it always makes you feel sick. But I guess with him, it was especially for somebody yeah. in pop culture, it was especially, um, it was a, an especially big bummer. And, you know, I think there's this huge, uh, value placed in America on happiness, you know, how to be happy, the pursuit of happiness. Um, what do we do in order to be happy? And I think that's like, I was, you know, telling my friend, I was like, I think that's all backwards. I think like what's the, the problem is that people don't know how to suffer, you know, like we all suffer and, uh, right. you know, happiness and suffering are two sides of the same coin. And like, I think that people want to deny their suffering. And so they numb themselves with substance or they dive into their telephone or they spend eight hours online looking at, you know, nonsense or whatever it is. But it's like, we don't want to lean into it and actually take a look at the suffering and uh, that's like the, the, you know, the way out is in. You've got to lean into it. There's that, that's the way to actually transcend it. And I don't think that that's said enough. Um, you know, yep. we try to anesthetize ourselves with any number of things, whether it's, you know, any number of forms of consumption, really, whether it's food or it's we're out shopping or we're, you know, drinking ourselves into oblivion. And I don't know. And sometimes it's not even about transcendence. It's just about perspective. Um, that's a big thing that recovery programs give. It's just an opportunity to spend time with other people who are struggling and going through the same things or similar things. Uh, but of course, walking their own path and having, you know, different insights. Well, and so, and so when your friend was your friend, uh, was it a heroin overdose or? Yeah, it, it was opiates. Opiates, uh, yeah. It, it's a complicated story, but, um, you know, someone who was beloved in the punk rock community, not just in San Diego, but 
really all over the country, but especially in California. His name was J.J. Orsborn. And uh, this guy had so many people that just absolutely loved him. Uh, you know, I was I was one of them, but, I mean, I wouldn't say that we were, like, super... I mean, I felt like we were close, but I think a thousand people probably felt that way. He just... He had that gift. He was really charismatic, really, you know, warm person. Uh, but he was in a tremendous amount of pain. Mm. And, you know, yeah, I mean, the thing, too, is that... Um I didn't, I didn't realize this until after my buddy passed away, but it was like, uh, you know, going out, like it doesn't take long. You go online, you start reading about this and like the number of deaths to opiate, accidental opiate overdose is like skyrocketed. And, oh yeah, you know, from the, it seems like the year 2000 was like a pivot point, but like, you know, all of these prescription, like prescription drug abuse essentially has overtaken the kinds of, uh, like drug abuse and drug use has overtaken the kinds of drugs that people were doing in the nineties, which was more like ecstasy and, um, smoking pot. And, you know, suddenly it, it started to pivot, I think, into like Vicodin and Oxycontin and, you know, all the rest. And you start to read about it and it's just tragic, you know? And so if anybody out there is, you know, listening, is like taking, you know, Adderall and mixing these things like a, don't do it. <laughs> And B, be very careful. Like, I always want to tell people because I think that there's, you know, and not to be preachy, but I mean, I think that there's some sort of, um, what's the word? It, it's like uh, imprimatur. Is that how you pronounce it? Imprimatur, imprimatur. Or yeah. uh, it, it, because it's prescription and because there's a medical, um, you know, identity to these pharmaceuticals, you know, they're kind of like, uh, you know, okayed by the Food and Drug Administration or whatever. People think that they're somehow safer. You know, I don't know. Uh, it's just, it's, no, it's, I think, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. So it's just, it's just dangerous. And, uh, it, it's, 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 it's never been easier to, to die. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a middle-aged guy. I'm 46 years old. And, uh, you know, I've seen, you know, people who are like half my age, people in their very early twenties who were just completely used up, strung out, uh, because the drugs are just so much more powerful. Yeah. And, Easy, easy to get your hands on them. Yeah. Well, like oxy. I mean, for God's sakes, it's like uh, it seems sort of criminal to me. I mean, I know that these. I mean, I, I, I can understand the argument that these things have a place in uh, a medical context, you know, for pain relief or something. But um, you know, like speaking of, um, my God, well, I'm blanking on the name of it. I can't believe it. What's the what's the heroin substitute that people get in rehab? The pill. Um, uh methadone yeah 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 like they give that drug to uh you know they give that drug in post-op sometimes as a pain reliever and it's the number i didn't realize this but i read somewhere online it's like the number one fatality causing um you know pharmaceutical in the country because people don't realize its power it's on time release so they take more than they need and all this stuff and uh, all right you know so it just it just seems sort of like reckless that they would even consider giving people this stuff well yeah i mean like you can get it in patches it's crazy you know? it's crazy you don't even have to ingest it you just stick it on your skin and off you go off you go so uh talk a little bit about uh getting sober like you you know your buddy passed away and did you just go cold turkey or did you start going to you know meetings or like what what did it take i, I did I, I went and i got some help and um you know, went into a very conventional recovery program. Um, like I said, I was very fortunate. I didn't, you know, I'm still married. I didn't get fired. I didn't smash my truck. You know, I have a very, you know, happy, much happier home life. But um, because of 
you know, decisions that I've made, but you know, I, I was a fairly high bottom. I didn't really lose anything um, except you know, a very good friend, and uh, it just kind of woke things up. And I didn't go to rehab. I did outpatient, um, you know, recovery meetings, and you know, moved around till I found some that I liked, and that ended up being um, uh, ones that were really near uh, a Navy base. You know, because I just felt most comfortable with a bunch of old sailors, and they also have some pretty good stories. Yeah, <laughs> I, I bet. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, but I also feel that it's easier for uh, artists because, um, you know, as opposed to that guy I was telling you about who, you know, smashes his truck and has nothing, um, I mean, an artist always has their art waiting for them. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say always, but it's there. It's something that they've either neglected or they haven't nurtured, or something that is waiting for them to to nourish, and that will in turn nourish them and distract them. Yeah, so, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, I've often thought like I've thought long and hard about like I, I look at myself and like how little uh, tolerance I have for hangovers, and I'm just a I'm just a wuss, you know. Like I can't do it. And then I look at somebody like Keith Richards, and I'm like, like a, everyone does this. It's like a how the fuck is he still alive? B like I read his book and I'm like, Andy's got his wits about him and like has an amazing memory. (laughs) Like it guys like the guy's like the bionic man. But, um, when you talk about having your art there to nourish you, you know, it makes sense to me that, uh, you know, substance abuse would be a major pitfall for people in, uh, in music because it, like, you know, not everybody escapes and not everybody's uh, as lucky as Keith Richards. But, um, but the point I'm trying to make is that, uh, you know, to have music there, like if you're hungover and then you just like walk out on stage and you have 30,000 people cheering for you and you have that, you know, the magnitude and power of that kind of human energy exchange. Well, you know, that's the that's a job that seems to work well with hangovers because <laughs> it would. Well, yeah. And then uh, I've, I've in interviews I've done with musicians that it's been told to me many times that that's that. Yeah, that's a high and everything, but it's the dead time that gets you and. You have another 20 hours, 22 hours before you get that high again. Right. And you're just in, you're in buses, you're in planes, you're in strange places, and there's absolutely nothing to do. There's nothing creative going on. Um, Read a book. I mean, you know, like, come on, guys. Well, you know, <laughs> get a game book. A lot of people, a lot of people do, but a lot of people don't. Yeah. Well, no, but I mean, you know, but at least they have that high, you know, that, that thing waiting for them. Like, it's the people who don't have anything. You know, and they're just on buses and planes and sitting in cubicles or whatever. And, you know, uh, you know, I don't know. I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is that to have the concert there, to have the audience there uh, is about as good as you could hope for if you're in that cycle. Right. So um, what about you? What about your writing in the aftermath of sobriety? You know, like, did you write Forest of Fortune post getting sober or was that in the works before? It was in the works before I had, um, let's see, I had, uh, so in the summer of 2008 is when I basically got fired by my agent. And so I was, um, that really lit a fire under my ass to be like, oh, well, fuck that guy. I'm going to show him. I mean, that's, you know, because he, he's a really nice guy. I don't mean it that way, but just that, uh, well, no, I mean, sure. You got to, it sucks to be in that position, no matter how nice and not nice the person is. So um, I'd been working at the Indian Casino for a couple of years and knew I knew from the second I walked in the door that I wanted to do something with it. And so that fall, I was like, you know, all right, I'm going to do it. 
um, I'm going I'm to knock out a novel or draft of a novel before the end of the year. And I did. And that's when J.J. died in January of 2009. Ugh. And, um, you know, I kind of went a little bonkers for about a month or so and then got got my act cleaned up. And, you know, that's when I started taking another look at the book and saw what a mess it was and reached out to the writing community in San Diego and joined a read and critique group and started going to classes and meeting with other writers and workshopping with other writers. And I spent a good solid year uh, work, revising the book before oh. um, trying to get a new agent and sending it out again. Okay, so how instrumental what were the writing groups and were the critiques to the success of the ultimate success of the manuscript? Like, did you get a lot out of that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it, it wasn't just, um, you know, because I, I, the part of my disease is I had been isolating. I had, you know, as my drinking was getting worse and worse, I was becoming more secretive. I was trying to find little pockets of time where, nobody would know where I was and I could go to the bar or I could go to the liquor store and, um, you know, just get what I needed to get through the day. And that was kind of where my focus was. That's kind of how I would look at the day. It was like, oh, here's a little window of time when I can, you know, instead of like doing writing or something like that, I was, I was, uh, fucking around. So, um, that has a kind of a toll on your self-esteem. So it wasn't just like the quality of the critique I was getting, which was which was oftentimes excellent, but it's just the uh, you know being built back up as a person. Like, hey, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I, I belong with this group of writers. This is where I. This is the place for me. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and uh, I had to be convinced of all of that. Well, yeah, it's it's funny too because I think there's some there's some power in simply being in the physical presence of other writers and other people who do what you do because, and I'm sure this is the case for anybody, but people who work more conventional jobs, like they're in the presence of people who do what they do every day at the office. But for writers who are working uh, on their own, like, you know, wherever they happen to be and however they happen to be doing the work, you know, you don't get that interplay unless you go and seek it out uh, or unless, unless you're in an academic environment, you know, in grad school or what have you. So, there's just something comforting to be around the other uh, crazy people, <laughs> you know, like be like, oh, you too. Oh, yeah. You know, they they get what you're up against in, intuitively and inherently. And, um, you know, even even if they can't critique your work uh, well or they don't really get, you know, the angle you're coming from, there can still be something, you know, um, nourishing about being around them. Right. And, um, you know, I have a master's degree in English, but I didn't go to an MFA um, or a writing program or anything of that nature. So I can see if you're um, in your 20s and you go from undergrad to an MFA and you've been doing the whole AWPBEA um, writing residency uh, circuit, you know, for a decade, how all that stuff would quickly become uh, incestuous and befuddling. But for people who are outside of it, uh, it's exactly like you describe it. it. It can be really helpful. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about getting this book done and then getting a new agent and then finding a publisher. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I had a good feeling. Um, I had a good feeling that about the book being where I needed it to be. 
and um, I reached out to um, some people who had offered to help me along the line um, before I did my thousand and one query letters to agents. And I got really lucky in that um, someone said, hey, let me check out the book, um, and they did, and uh, and they introduced me to their agent. Okay, so who who was the person and who's the agent? <laughs> who introduced that you? Was, it was Patrick DeWitt. Okay. Who um, I've only met once, like for five seconds, at the L.A. Times Festival of Books, but was just a real uh, super nice guy. And um, He wrote uh, The Sisters Brothers. He wrote The Sisters Brothers. Uh, but he also wrote a book called um, Absolution. No, Ablution, sorry. Ablution. Right, right. And uh, which is just a horrific novel about L.A. alcoholics. <laughs> um, and I highly recommend it was it has some of the most disgusting disgusting sex scenes that you'll ever want to encounter <laughs> it was also the last book that I read before I got sober ah. I remember I remember walking just being a lunatic and having that in my pocket for a couple of weeks um, before I finally got walked, started walking the straight and narrow but um, so I actually got in touch with him before um Sisters Brothers, and I, th I think now he's a lot harder to get a hold of. I was going to say, yeah. Well, he's got so much more on his plate and so many people asking him things to do, so I, I just think I came along at a good time, and he introduced me to his agent, and uh, Peter McGuigan at Foundry, and uh, we've been working together ever since. Awesome. So, and then what about the sales process? How did that go? Well, we went out to uh, a number of, um, to all of them, you know, the you know, mainstream houses, and there were no takers. And, uh, but in that process, and I'm not really sure how it happened, but uh, um, is when my agent put me together with um, Scott Campbell Jr.'s people from Deadliest Catch. And that's when I wrote that uh, Giving the Finger, um, Scott, we worked on that, collaborated on his memoir together. Right. So um, that was a little bit of a detour in the submission process because suddenly I had this new project to work on. But um, it took about a year from the time when, well, a year, 15 months from the time when we first talked to the time when I turned in the manuscript. And, uh, and then pretty much as soon as I did that, we started submitting Force of Fortune again to um, indie presses. And Tyrus was just been fantastic to work with. They just jumped at it. And when the day they, okay. And what was your reaction? I mean, was it a great, I mean, obviously it's a great feeling, but, uh, did, were you, was there a point at which you feared it wouldn't happen or did you already, did you always have like a pretty good sense of confidence that it was going to land somewhere? Oh no, no, no. I, I am like the, I mean, I'm, I'm confident as a writer, but I don't, I'm, I don't have, have any confidence about outcomes. I mean, it's out of my control. And I've had other novels, I've tried to sell other novels that I thought were good and nothing happened. So, um, you know, so I, I don't, I, I'm fairly pessimistic. And maybe you've had some experience with this, but like when you live in LA and you're surrounded by TV and film people, and it's kind of like the town of collapsing deals. Right. Where 
<laughs> things where people are so close to amazing projects that just never happen. Yeah, no, it's constant. It's like it's like uh, it's all bullshit until the, I mean it's like the old adage like it's all bullshit until the check is cashed. But like that really is true because yeah, until, yeah, and even then until it clears, you know. I mean, right. It, <laughs> right. It, it really is amazing. I've since learned that New York is a or the publishing world is. Uh, more conservative and that generally when people say things are going to happen, they'll happen. Maybe not always the way you thought they were, but well, when my novel, when my novel sold, it went out and we had eight different instances where the, uh, you know, acquisitions editor was all into it, but then couldn't get it through the editorial meeting, you know, like they couldn't get it consensus. So the first time that happened, it was like 24 hours after it went out. My agent was like, you know, so-and-so loves it. And I was such a rookie. I was like, holy shit, like, no kidding. And she's like, yeah, she's like, she wants to publish it, blah, blah, blah. As soon as I heard wants to publish it, I thought I was done. And uh, I told my parents, you know, I went through this whole, (laughs) told like everyone, you know, close to me that this book had just been sold and then had to go back and like tell them all that it had had fallen apart. So I've been through that too many times. And then, um, you know, have been through it a little bit on the film and television side and have seen it happen to, you know, countless times to friends and whatnot. So... You know, yeah. I, I feel I feel like publishing is a little bit more solid in that sense, though. Yeah, and it's but it's I'm I would say I'm almost paranoid, and I mean, I mean talk about the racket that we're involved in. That is, it's a business of delayed gratification because you're never really sure when to celebrate. Right. I mean, you know, do you celebrate when you get the news, or is it the news the news, or is the contract the news, or when you, you know, you know, it, it just keeps. You know, there's there's not like this moment when someone shows up at your door with balloons and a check and, you know. Right, right. Well, you know, yeah, <laughs> there is like an anticlimax to it. I always call them false summits, but it's like I remember, uh, you know, my book coming out on like the first day that it was in the bookstore. And like you go to the bookstore and you like walk in and you're like, there's my book. And then you sort of stand there and you're like. Okay, I think I'm going to leave now. You know, like you know, like you feel like an asshole. You're like, what am I? Okay, I just did this, and it just—it's sort of a letdown. You're like, okay, I, I built this up in my head to like I thought maybe yeah. like a unicorn was going to like walk into the bookstore and like you know, oh yeah, nuzzle me or something, but it didn't happen. And so I think that you know I used to always advocate when I was teaching creative writing uh, for celebration or for like acknowledgement of of good moments, simply because like talking about delayed gratification. You know, you work on a book for three years. Uh, and then you, and you're lucky enough to get it published and then, you know, you go back to work on the next one. That one could take you five years. You know, there, there's a, there's a lot of lag time. There's a lot of time in the wilderness. So when good things happen, I do think it's like emotionally healthy to like acknowledge it in some way. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a thousand percent on board with that in that, uh, in that, you know, we only have so many milestones in this life that, you know, we should acknowledge them and, and learn to feel good about it and not be embarrassed. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big achievement, you know, just like even if the book doesn't get published just to get it done. But, you know, in terms of like feeling celebratory or like reminiscing about the good times, um, you know, again, not to sound too schmaltzy, but like what I've always felt with the benefit of hindsight and and pretty much only with the benefit of hindsight is that the best times in a a writer's life are uh, and the ones that I look back on most fondly are when like the time when I was in the book. And, uh, you know, the composition process was going well, like that's the fun. And even though it's, you know, it's grueling because those times, you know, they're not always there. There are plenty of days where you sit there and it's not working, but 
right. you know, that's what I look back most fondly on. Like that's the fun of it. And, you know, it can be hard to kind of get a hold of that when you're in the middle of it and it's coming in fits and starts, you know? No, absolutely. I, I enjoy the writing of it. Revising, uh, not so much, but I, I always enjoy sitting down. You know, that just reminded me that when you said teaching, that's how we, I got to know or how I learned about you is because we were both teaching at Santa Monica College. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's okay. That was it. And then my book came out. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think you were only there a couple of years. I was only there a couple of years, but um, we, for a brief period, we were both there, like, like teaching night classes or something. You know? Right. Yeah. I did. I actually did five years. Uh, I liked it there. It's a great school. It's just, you know, adjuncting. <laughs> It's uh, a, yeah. it's a brutal profession, <laughs> uh, you know, at least from a pay, pay perspective. So, right. um, so let's talk, I want to hear more about your life. You know, you mentioned the Navy, uh, I want to get to that, but like, where are you from originally? Um, well, I'm the son of two New Yorkers. They, um, my mom is from Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and my father's from the Bronx. And, uh, my dad is a Navy guy, so a life Navy lifer, so we moved around quite a bit when I was young. So, um, but I mostly grew up in Northern Virginia. That's where I went went to grade school and finished high school in Falls Church, Virginia. What is that like a suburb of DC? Yeah. Okay. It's uh, nestled in between Fairfax and County and Arlington County. It actually Falls Church doesn't belong to the county. I used to know why, but I don't anymore. It used to be. Um, well, you know how, like, if you look at a map of the District of Columbia, um, there's, like, a triangle, and then there's the Potomac, so it's kind of like the southwest corner. It looks like it's been rotted away or something. Okay. But if you were, if you were to continue the triangle, um, I'm sorry, not a triangle, a diamond, um, you would be in Falls Church, Virginia. It's right across from the Potomac. So, and you're, you said your dad was a Navy man. Was he, like, out at sea and stuff when you were a kid? Yeah. Um, he was in Vietnam. He was on patrol when I was born, and that kind of set the tone. I think we lived in like seven different places by the time I was six years old. Oh wow! Okay. But uh, but I was born in New York, and then moved, bumped around. I st- and we didn't live overseas. It was always in the United States. And uh, and my father was fortunate in the sense that he had gigs. You know, naval officers will frequently do. You know, two years at sea or two years or three years, you know, in port. And he was able to get uh, gigs in D.C. So um, so that enabled us to kind of stay put in in the Northern Virginia area. Have like a stable childhood. Yeah, compared to a lot of Navy families, it's extremely stable. I mean, he wasn't always there. He was often gone. But, uh, but we made it work. And so and it was a, like a, and your mom was a stay-at-home or did she work? She was a nurse. Oh, she was a nurse. Okay. So, and did you have like, is there a literary uh, bent anywhere in your family? Yeah. Um, so on my on my mother's on my father's side, his dad is a musician, and and my dad is is a really good storyteller and kind of a compulsive organizer. Where I think that's where the vermin thing comes from because my dad is always throwing gala events and um, but and making them annual things and. Things like that. So um, I think that's where I got that aspect from. And then on my mom's side, um, my cousin, uh, her sister had three kids, and uh, one of them 
was a guy named Mark, Mark Carducci, and uh, he was someone that I always looked up to. He was a, a screenwriter in L.A. Uh, he wrote, uh, he was drawn to horror films, and he wrote Pumpkinhead and Neon Maniacs and a couple of other things. Right. So you had a little bit of it. And then, like, growing up, like, were you a uh, happy kid reading books? Uh, or was it one of those things that, you know, you were, like, playing sports and running around the neighborhood and didn't get literary until later? Um, kind of a mix of both. You know, there was four of us and uh, four kids. My younger brother, Emmett, we were 13 months apart. So we were competitive at just about everything. So um, if he was better at something than I was, which was most sports, then I would kind of not do it. Um, so we were like in different teams and different leagues, but we were, you know, we played baseball and basketball. I mean, growing up in the D.C. area, the the sports are um, are pretty competitive. Like I, my favorite sport was basketball, and there was just no way I was going to make a high school basketball team. Right. Uh, in Washington D.C., I mean, you know, I think like. Grant Hill was one of the schools <laughs> that we competed with, you know, and especially when I went to a Catholic school, you, not that we were great, but a lot of those private schools um, had some phenomenally talented players. Sure. Uh, so I just played county ball and, um, you know, had a lot of fun with that. And then what about, uh, like, grades? You're a good student? You Like, you, uh, you show some promise, or was it uh, a... You know, like, I was, I was always a big reader. Um, I... At some point, I think I must have wanted to be a writer, and um, I mean, then I loved, fell in love with comic books and science fiction and fantasy and Dungeons and Dragons, and much to my parents' horror, because they were always afraid that I was going to, um, you know, uh, basically turn out like Mark, become really fascinated with <laughs> the occult, kind of weird <laughs> genre, and. That would be it, you know, like because my cousin, you know, I mean, he was he was into what he was into, and he was, you know, that's what he did, and he wasn't apologetic about it at all, and um, that was a really valuable lesson to me. It's like, you know, who cares what your parents, you know, if your parents don't like what you like, you know, it's just do what you want to do. But I don't know what happened to me, but I, at the end of high school, I got really antisocial and really bad with grades, and. Uh, it was, you know, like I said, it was a prep school, and everybody was going to colleges, and I just couldn't bring myself to even apply. Dude, I was sort of the same way. Like, I, I mean, I did apply, but I only, I had like uh, perfect grades, essentially, good SATs. Like, I had everything going, and I just got to that like about the end of my junior year, and just like started to run out of gas. I just didn't give a shit anymore, and I was tired of being in school. And I got to yeah. my senior year, and I didn't even. I was like, I don't want to go to college. I just want to like live my life or something. I was just, I think I was just tired of being in that, you know, uh, that circuit where it's like, you know, study for the test, get a good grade. They give you the piece of cheese or whatever. And, um, I just didn't have it. And I think maybe part of it was like, you know, some sort of depression or maybe part of it was, you know, I think too, like sometimes, uh, emotionally adolescents who are approaching, you know, that leaving the nest moment will start to get a little bit funky emotionally. Uh, maybe, I don't know. You know, I, I, I wish I, I knew exactly what it was, but I, I went through something similar. Yeah, it, it's kind of hard to describe in that, um, you know, um, in the sense that I don't remember it. I mean, I wouldn't say it was a dark time or anything like that, but uh, 
I know I was like, the only thing I was really focused on was getting out of the house, but knew I wasn't ready for college. And then um, along came uh, this opportunity to enlist in the Navy in this uh, college program. And uh, this is a little interesting because um, it's something that I've always confronted my father about, and I think he basically created this program for, you know, the fuck-up sons of naval officers to <laughs> go in the fleet and then get some, a, a boost on their uh, um, GI Bill to pay for college later, kind of like a seasoning program for the sons of wavered naval officers, which my father completely denies, but there are all kinds of things that point otherwise. Like, back then, he was poker buddies with the Secretary of the Navy, so, I mean, come on. Right. Like he couldn't. Like, he couldn't get this program pushed through. And um, they only accepted, like, it was a short-lived program. They only accepted a couple thousand people. And it was called the Navy Sea College Program. And I was Navy Sea College candidate number one. <laughs> good, I mean, old, good old dad. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, give me a break. But um, that was the best and worst thing that ever happened to me because uh, – then I joined the Navy, and I was an enlistment, and I went to Great Lakes, Illinois, in the middle of winter for boot camp, and realized, holy fuck, did I make a bad decision. <laughs> I was going to say, like, it just sounds uh, hellish, boot camp, I, you know. Oh, man. I mean, apparently it's easier now in the sense that, you know, you can have water breaks, and they're not allowed to, like, haze you and things like that. But, um, I mean, I'm sure it's hell for everyone to go through in their own way, but, but yeah, not, not a good time. So what did you, what did you wind up doing? You, so you're in the Navy and then, uh, like how long are you in the Navy before you, you bounced to college? Um, so it was, you had to do two years of active duty and then four years, it was a six year deal, two years of active duty and four years of inactive reserves. You could choose to go active reserve, you know, and make make a little extra money by doing your duty on weekends and two weeks a year and all that. And I did that for a couple of years, but then I was like, you know, this is kind of bullshit. I'm just going to stick with the inactive. But, yeah, um, I was, I got out of boot camp. I got sent to San Diego, California. Uh, I was put on, I was a deck seaman on the USS Meyer Cord, which is a, um, it's now been mothballed but it was uh it was even obsolete then it was a diesel powered sub hunter uh, in an age of nuclear submarines meaning they knew we were in the theater before we knew about them and um i worked as a deck seaman paint and preservation what does that mean you're just like painting the deck yeah uh chipping hammers and sanding down doors and i mean ships are made out of metal and metal rust so, right. You know, you find a rusty spot, get the rust off, cover with primer, and then cover it with paint, and then go on to the next one. And sometimes it's a door, sometimes it's a passageway, sometimes it's the whole side of a ship. So, and how long, like you're out at sea, are you traveling around the world on this ship, or are you just like docked in San Diego? Uh, both. Huh. Uh, after I got there, we did a six-month tour, uh, a six-month tour. And uh, we were supposed to go to the Persian Gulf, and we were actually on our way to the Persian Gulf. And then on uh, May 17, 1987, 
we were on our, we were almost at uh, Pearl Harbor when the USS Stark got hit by an Iraqi jet fighter, and it put two missiles into the ship, and 37 sailors died. God, I don't even remember and, that. I mean, I guess I was young. I would have been... Yeah, well, this is 87. It's the tanker war. It's before the Gulf War. Iraq, is, or they are our allies at this point. Um, Iran and Iraq are battling it out. They're blowing up each other's oil tankers. And we had a military presence, which is always a shitty idea, because you don't have a mission. You're just there, and eventually you're going to be a target for, for somebody. Right. And, um, and it happened to the Stark. So the Navy was like, holy shit, we better not send any more frigates to the Persian Gulf. And instead of just sending us home, we then did a six-month uh, goodwill tour of the Western Pacific, which uh, was a hellacious amount of good fun. What does that mean? Like you're in like uh, the islands of the South Pacific and stuff like that? Oh, yeah, we went all over. We went to like Japan four or five times, went to the Philippines six times, we went to Hong Kong, and Korea. We went to a couple places in Australia. Um, we went to more places in one tour than a lot of sailors will ever see in 20 years. And then you just like, would you get off the boat and like hand out some candy or <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> Goodwill tour. You sing? Well, what do you think we did, Brad? I don't know. I mean, I know there's yeah. like, there's the concept of shore leave. I'm sure like at night you guys were out carrying on, but like, uh, did you have like an objective like, oh, we're going to go to Japan and like meet these school children or like help with this? Village? No, our objective was to get as drunk as possible <laughs> and start as many fights as we could and fuck as many people. <laughs> that, that was mission, aco- <laughs> mission accomplished. <laughs> wow. Okay. That sounds like such a boondoggle. Yeah, it, I don't, I mean, I don't understand it. I feel terrible for what happened to the Stark. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad it wasn't us. So and so, you never saw like combat or anything like that. No, no. I mean, I am really handy with a mop and uh, a paint roller and uh, the whole arsenal of pneumatic-powered um, needle guns, chipping hammers, deck scrapers. I'm really good at all that. Yeah. Well, you gotta, you know, you gotta get some. You gotta have a. You gotta have a trade, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but now I don't paint anything ever. It's like, what? They don't paint anything or pay anything? No, I'm me. I, I just refuse to do it. Oh you yeah, yeah. You did your time. Yeah, so painted enough, enough shit. So getting out of the navy, going to graduate school, was that like the trans? Or no, you went back to college where? So um, I went back to Virginia because, you know, um, my I got a little I got a kicker on my um, GI Bill, but I still couldn't afford to go anywhere other than my home state. Um, so when it, when you enlist in the military, like whatever state you is your state of residence when you enlist, that becomes your home state. So that's where they fly you back to at the end, and that's you know your your state of record. So. Um, that's where I could qualify, you know, for my, the best benefits. And, um, so I went back to Virginia and I went to, uh, Radford University in Southwest Virginia. It was, uh, the only school that would take me because my grades were so bad. Um, where, what town is Radford in? In Radford, Virginia. It's oh, it southwest is. of Blacksburg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I've, uh, I've 
like that part of the that's where the Appalachian Trail goes through. So I know that part of yeah. It, um, I mean, in that part of in that part, you're closer to West Virginia and to North Carolina than you are, and to uh, Tennessee than you are to like Washington D.C. It's yeah, it's a different it's a different Virginia than people who are thinking of like D.C. and like Northern Virginia. Like that part of Virginia is like country. Yeah. That's the you're in. The- oh yeah, it's different. I mean, Virginia is interesting in that you know there's the whole Charlottesville you know college area. There's Richmond and there's the Tidewater area, and then there's Northern Virginia and the beltway of washington dc but southwest virginia is uh i mean it's like moonshiner country right right it's like uh it's appalachia <laughs> it is i i took an appalachian studies class when i was there and uh um, learned about snake handlers and all that kind of stuff did you have a good time um yeah i did uh i was very fortunate in the sense that um they had a i mean it was then, here's the thing with Radford, it used to be a teacher's college, an all-women's teacher's college, and then they went co-ed, and for many, many years, in fact, I don't know if they still have balanced out, there was more, always more women than men. So there was kind of a stigma against it as it wasn't as rigorous a school, and Virginia has some great schools. I mean, UVA, yeah. William & Mary, and... Um, so there, there are other, there are plenty of schools in that part of the world. So it just got this reputation as a party school, and um, and it, it kind of was when I worked there. When I was sorry, when I went there, and um, but they had a really small but intense honors program, and because having come from the Navy and knowing what I did not want to do with my life, I was really motivated to succeed i didn't know what that meant but i was real i really applied myself to my studies and so i got a lot of great one-on-one attention from uh uh, faculty especially in the english department Hmm. well see that's that's the that's the benefit of a gap year or like you know i guess in your case like naval service is that uh you know if you go out and you work a shitty you know some shitty jobs for a year or two uh, it does teach you that. Like, I remember working, like, the summer after my freshman year, like, I worked on a construction site. I had this, like, notion that it would be fun. I'd be outside. It's the fucking worst job I ever had. I'm, I remember I remember being like, I'm not doing that for the rest of my life. Like, these guys, oh, yeah. like, they were their bodies were wrecked. You know, these were, like, 40- and 50-year-old guys who, you know, had been, doing, had been at this for 25 years, and they were, you know, yeah. they were hurting. So it's just uh, it's an eye-opener. Plus, I mean, at that time, you probably were subjected to what today would be considered to unrelenting sexual harassment from these 40-year-old construction workers who have mouths like, um, you know, Hong Kong prostitutes. Well, they just didn't know what to make of me. I mean, you know, I was, like, really naive, and, you know, they were probably just like, what a jackass. But I basically just did whatever they didn't want to do. And, you know, the foreman would just be like, you know, dig a ditch, <laughs> like, or... You know, it was awful. And I, I remember, too, like they made me walk across. We were building a, a warehouse and, uh, you know, they were putting in the cross beams, these giant cross beams, and they were working on them up there. And, of course, these guys are like 30 and 40 feet up off the ground and like have no problems walking like, you know, 25 yards on a beam with no rope, you know, carrying like a toolbox in each hand. And so the guy calls me up and he's like, <laughs> he's like, you scared of heights? And I was like, I don't think so. You know, I was like, I don't know. And you know, there's a little bit of peer pressure. And I like, I went up there, took like three steps and wound up like on my belly, like hugging this beam. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's very embarrassing, but uh, I had to climb down on the ladder. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, there's a million things like that in the Navy. You're like, someone says, hey, what are you doing? You're like, nothing. And the next thing you know, you're in a harness and you're over the side and you're like painting the water line, you know? Right, right. Yeah. So um, did you, you did you leave Radford and then come back immediately to San Diego? I came back to Los Angeles. I was, I was not a fan of San Diego um, at the time. I mean, when you are stationed in a city, um, and this should come as no surprise to anybody who lives near a military base, those people are not too fond of you. I mean, you're, there's in our case, there's sailors always com- coming through San Diego, and all they want is, you know, to party and have a good time and be a nuisance. So, um you know, I didn't really meet too many. I didn't meet a lot of college girls. I didn't meet a lot of locals. It was just hanging out with other sailors or other other people who were from other places. Right. So um, I was pretty much done with San Diego, which is ironic because I live there now, just a couple miles from the Navy base. But um, I went to L.A. and I worked in a uh, coffee shop. My idea was to get residency in California and then become a James Joyce scholar. Because that was what I was—I uh, thought would be a really cool thing to do after doing some independent studies on Ulysses and against Wake at Radford. Wow, okay, that's ambitious. Yeah, well, it's also kind of naive, and uh, <laughs> I was working in a coffee shop in North Hollywood, and um, kind of realizing that my—you know—that I really did not have the kind of uh, academic resume that was going to get me into. Um, a UCLA or a Berkeley or anything like that, and it, also that it was very competitive, that it was going to be expensive and it was not going to be easy to get into, and it might take me uh, a long time. And uh, a customer came into the coffee shop and was like, you know what you would like? You would like Flagstaff. And I'm like, what the hell is Flagstaff? And it's like, that's, it's in Arizona. It's a mountain town. It's like the Sarah, It's like the Santa Cruz of Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, all right, that sounds cool. So um, I went and checked it out, and it turns out they had a really interesting uh, program where um, they had a you know a cool, uh, um, it wasn't a writing program, but it was a master's program where you uh, taught autonomous, autonomously in, um, the composition classes, and you got, they paid for your tuition, and you were paid uh, to teach. So, it was an opportunity to learn to learn how to do that and not go into a shit ton of debt. Right, right. Yeah, no. The Flagstaff is beautiful. It is. So you went. So you went there for graduate school, and spent- I did. And and that's where I met um, Todd Taylor, who's the publisher of Razor Cake, and Sean Carswell, who's the publisher of Gorski Press, and who published my first book, uh, Big Lonesome, the collection of short stories. So, yeah, I, I had him on the show and was also on on their podcast. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, that's, I remember this, when Madhouse Fog came out, he was he was on the show. Right. So, um, so yeah, it's it's like that old cliche about, you know, it's not so much where you go to school or who you study with, but it's like it's the people who, the friends you make in the program. And uh, Todd and Sean are are really good friends and we continue to support each other's work. Um, I mean, I don't think there's ever a time when we're not reading each other's manuscripts and, or uh, helping each other out in some way. And, uh, well, that's awesome, man. And now look at you, you wrote the author of a masterpiece <laughs> of desperation <laughs> and delusion. <laughs> hey dude. <laughs> 
That's it. A master of desperation and delusion. <laughs> we have some cards made, Brad. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're almost done here. But before I let you go, I have to ask you about the time you spent working at an Indian casino because that figures into the book. And it's, oh, also, right. it's also just uh, fascinating. You know, you must have seen some shit. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, in one sense, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, I, the best way to describe it, it's kind of like working in a seven, the biggest 7-Eleven you've ever been in, um, you know, because it never closes. You get all kinds of people at all times from all over the state, all over the world. And they drag themselves in here, and um, they, expect to have, they expect to win a lot of money. And almost all of them lose. Well, yes and no. I think I think the way it works out is that um, one. Um, I think it's like one in six or one in five win, one in six lose. I mean, one in six win, one in six break even, and the rest lose. Ugh. So what's the like? Were you dealing? <laughs> you know, it's really funny. It's a running joke in uh, Force of Fortune where people are always asking one of the characters named Pemberton if he's a blackjack dealer. Because that's what people always ask me. If I was a blackjack dealer, I was like, no, I have an education. I'm a professional writer. I was working in the marketing department. <laughs> well, I didn't know. Well, I, I didn't like, know if you were in, sitting there dishing out cards. I mean, you can make some good <laughs> tips, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, you know, but, you know, I, I kind of suck at math, and I would probably end up making some mistake or... Um, or something, oh. or some you know crime syndicate would see me as uh, um, a good target for some kind of uh, underhanded scheme, and I'd be doing time. Right. But no, so- I worked in the marketing department, and uh, I was the only writer. And uh, if there are any people listening who are in advertising, they'll shudder when they. I had no account team and no proofreader. I was the whole show, so I wrote TV, radio. Um, newsletters, emails, placemats, things on poker chips and matchbox. I mean, I wrote everything. Wow. Wow. And, and did you, I mean, but did you see stuff happening on the floor? Or were you isolated from that? No, I mean, I had to be on the floor every day and, um, it was you kind of required it. Plus it's, it's kind of like working at, you know, Disneyland or something like that. We are always moving around. You have to go, you know, to write something about you need to go talk to someone in the poker department or bingo or food and beverage and so you're you're walking the floor or taking these back routes through these little offices or subterranean passages and you know yeah you're always moving around that that part was really I really liked about it is I never knew what I was going to be working on I never knew you know what would happen and I mean that's kind of the charm of gambling too is that you know you never know what's going to happen and yeah. I've, I've walked by when people hit jackpots. Uh, I interviewed one guy who won like something like a quarter of a million or half a million dollars, and that was pretty fun. God, man. What was he doing? <laughs> Shrieking? <laughs> he was smoking very heavily. Uh, like one like he one, one dragon, he's killing a cigarette. Like <laughs> Just like burning it to ass. Yeah, he was like... Um, you know, because this, you know, that's a life changer. That's, you know, he was in his fifties or sixties. So he was like, okay, I'm done. You know? Yeah. Damn. Well, see, that's the thing that, that story right there sends people back to the slots and to the tables right there. Like that could be me. Oh, yeah. So do you gamble? Yeah. Do you, did you ever play when you were there? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I'm a, I like sports betting 
and the only kind of uh, um, wagering on sports you can do in California is paramutual uh, on the horse betting. And uh, so I would, you know, after work, I'd put in bets, you know, on the big races. I would do that. And, um, and every once in a while, I would put some money in the machine. But uh, um, it was never, there was never really big encouragement because if you're going to play at a casino, you want to play with something that has a progressive, meaning it's tied into a larger jackpot. And as an employee, I was not entitled to any progressive. So it was kind of like, what's the point? So like in what, just out of curiosity, like for people who are planning on going to a casino, like what, what's the best game to play? What are the odds? Where are the odds the best for the player and the worst for the house? Um, well, I mean, there's, I mean, poker is always the best way because you're not playing against the house. You're playing against other people. Yeah. Uh, so if you have some skill, talent, luck, then, you know, you can make money. Uh, it just, it takes a long time and there's, you know, no guarantees. Uh, video poker uh, is the same thing. There, there's a way that there's a correct way to play. You can check out a couple books and learn how to do it. And if you have a facility with math and are good with games, then, you can figure it out and you can make a little money that way, but it just takes a long time. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I don't have time. I don't know. Like I have a friend who, uh, you know, comes from money and was like very comfortable and like he just spent hours playing poker, like video poker, yeah. like back when online poker was legal and you could gamble, you know, online. Like that's, oh, yeah. that's what he did. And I remember running into him at the Hollywood bowl years ago when he was in the thick of it and he had just come back from Vegas and he had this like shit eating grin on his face, and I'm like, "What's going on?" He's like, "I just won one hundred and forty thousand dollars." I'm like, "You ass!" <laughs> and this is a guy who didn't need it. <laughs> I'm like, "You asshole!" <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. It's always well, the guys who don't need it who are winning big in Vegas. Like I, I had a similar buddy in college who like won like you know came back from breakfast with like five thousand dollars. He won on Kino or something. It's like what the. Yeah. Well, you can make some money on Kino, but it takes uh, it takes money to win money. That's the, the thing. You need a bankroll. Yeah. And. Um, that's that's where it makes you know the big judgment. I mean, you know, there'll be uh, um, every once in a while I'll be like, God, I really wish I could make a bet right now. Like like when I heard that uh, Rory McIlroy is that his name was getting five to one odds to win the the uh, that tournament he was in. Yeah, the, the PGA. Uh, yeah, I was like, oh man, he's totally gonna get it. And and then I learned that there was another way where you could like take out the top four. Um, the top four guys and just bet the rest of the field and I'd be like man you just put some money on McElroy and then the rest of the field you, then it's basically just three you're betting against three guys yeah that's a good you would have won like uh, hindsight's twenty twenty, dude <laughs> well you know but you know it's uh, these are these are not things you should do with the family finances. Right, exactly. Especially when you're about to, when you've just quit your job. Yeah, I was, was going to say, <laughs> get get to work on that. Oh, yeah, get, get, I quit and I bet five grand on <laughs> on a golf player. Well, listen, we uh, really need to tune in. And... <laughs> get to work on the next book, uh, and congrats on this one. It's been great talking with you. I'm glad to to have you on the show and to get to give this uh, this novel a push in the TMB book club. Well, thanks so much, Brad. Okay, that's Jim Rulin. Go get his novel. It's called Forest of Fortune, out there now. 
from uh, Tyrus Books. You can find Jim online at jimruland.net. He's on Twitter. His handle over there is at Jim Vermin. And uh, he's also on the Facebook. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, get that app, the free official Other People app, the official app of this podcast, available wherever apps are available. Sign up for premium, stream the archives. Uh, sign up for the TNB Book Club over at the Nervous Breakdown Book Club or the over at the thenervousbreakdown.com. Uh, just click on Book Club in the menu bar. It's very easy. And that's a good deal. It's less than a cost of a book. You get a book every month. And then you can hear the uh, authors on this uh, program talking with me. What do you think about that? And, uh, you know, look, I'm not saying you can't go to a dive bar. You know? Enjoy your life. Whatever. I'm just saying quit talking about it. Quit... Just, you know, be smart. <laughs> it's a little overdone, especially among a certain segment of the population. Mostly, like, college-educated, like, white people who think they have good taste in music. You know those people? Those are the people who are doing this. Gotta stop that. I think I found my cause. Please remember that Rumi's father was a butcher and that T.S. Eliot's first wife, Vivian, insisted on washing her own bedsheets, even when staying at a hotel... Uh, that's it for now. Thanks again to Jim Ruland, Tyrus Books. Go get Forest of Fortune. Thanks to you guys for listening. Uh, I appreciate it. And uh, I will be back again soon uh, with another conversation with somebody. I don't know who it's going to be. And neither do you. It's a mystery. I like this music right here. This feels like a nice thing to be playing as I say the word mystery. Maybe I should turn this up. Hang on. Yeah. I don't usually get this funky at the end of the show. I don't usually get this funky, period. <laughs> That's what I'll leave you with. I want to leave you with that visual. Imagine me dancing to this music. In a dive bar. <laughs>